0: Let's take our Bibles and let's discuss about this Jesus this morning. If you'd join me in the book of Job, Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Your singing was beautiful this morning. Thank you so much. Blessed my heart. In Job chapter 38, if you don't have the notes, they're in the bulletin. Otherwise, the ushers have some of those notes. Raise your hand. They'll move by and they'll hand you some so you can follow along. I was reading a story that I'm not sure how the truth in the sense of several have quoted it and I didn't go and do research on it but it's a story that they said won an award in Georgia here a couple years a few years back it's about a lawyer who was clever this lawyer had bought a very very expensive box of cigars that were very rare there was 24 of them in this box and he bought them and he then decided to have them insured insured against all fire damage He got the insurance policy, got it in place, and then over the next few months, he would periodically take them out and he would enjoy them, lighting one up after another, smoking them. And when all 24 were gone, he filed his claim with the insurance company that they were all damaged by fire. Now, you and I would say this is a frivolous lawsuit, and so did the judge who heard the case. But when it went to the final conclusion, the judge said, it is frivolous, it is silly, but by the very statement of the clause, there wasn't anything in the clause that said about protecting from certain types of fire. Therefore, the insurance company is on the hook to pay for the lost property that was lost by fire. So they were ordered to pay him $15,000 for these different cigars. He ended up getting the check, and the day that he cashed the check, the insurance company filed charges against him for arson against insured property. (laughs) He went to court. Based on his own words from the previous case, he was found guilty, fined $24,000, and up to two years in jail for arson against uh, insured property. They used his own words against him. That is exactly what happens in Job 38. In Job 38, the story has come where Job has been making comments all along up to this point. He has said, I want to talk to God. I want to talk to God. And if I could talk to God, he would have to answer me. And he would have to, he would have to defend himself. And I want him to speak. And we've given you here a number of the times that he's spoken up. God, I want to meet you face to face. Job 38, God shows up. God comes all of a sudden, we read in verses 1 and 2, that the Lord answered. He showed up in a whirlwind. He showed up in this fast-moving storm that all of a sudden the Lord was at hand. One author was saying it reminded him of a personal experience, how suddenly this happened. That he, when he was a child, about 10 years of age, he was out fishing there on the east coast in one of the bays along the southern states. And he says he and his dad were fishing. It was a calm morning. The glad, the, the, the bay was as glad Just nothing was moving. He said if you would have thrown something into the water, it would have caused this rippling effect that you could see for a long space. And it was quiet. And nothing was moving. There wasn't a sound. And as a little boy, he kept on dozing and dozing. And he kept on after every so often saying, Dad, there's no bites. There's no bites. And his dad would keep on saying, Don't worry, they're down there. Don't worry, they're down there. The little dad said, you just have to be quiet and I don't want you to say anything else. So the little boy, the man says as a little boy, he's sitting there, sitting there, he's starting to doze off in the boat and all of a sudden there was this splash. He looked up and coming up out of the water was this tarpon that jumped flipped, went right back down and splashed the water on him. He jumped up, screamed, and his dad said, I told you they're down there. That's all that was said. That's the way God appears all of a sudden to Job. Ah, uh, there, There's just this instant appearance where the Lord, and the Lord talks to him. For the next few chapters, there's a conversation. Actually, it's pretty one-sided. God does all the talking. Job is kind of dumbfounded. The, chapter, the, the chapters can be divided into two different statements by the Lord. And I give you the information that chapter 38 through part of chapter 40, it is his first comment. And then God says at the end of that time, he says, Job, do you have anything to say? And we'll talk about what Job says. Then he does a second sermon or discussion in chapter 46 through uh, 40 verse 6 all the way to 41 to the end of the chapter. And it's God's second conversation. In these conversations, God is speaking, as we said, out of a whirlwind, out of a tornado. This is not the first time God has appeared in a storm. We can go back to different accounts like at the Mount Sinai where we read about the lightning and the thunder and the winds and the rains and how God was there and the people were terrified and there was the trumpet sounding from the mountain and it was, it was just an amazing sight and the, 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 the whole upheaval of that whole situation and the people, they were trembling because the entire mountain appeared to be on fire and up in smoke. That's one of the times Ezekiel talks about another time how God appeared to him and I saw him approaching him and as he approached it was like this whirlwind that was all consuming fire that was enfolded in it and Ezekiel like the people of Israel he is trembling because God's appearance is coming on so strong and with such power. I guess, I guess I, I'm thinking of Job standing there sitting there in the ash heap saying I want to talk to God I want to talk to God all of a sudden this appearance of this huge storm, this tornado, and he knows it's God, what do you think he physically felt or heard? How would that be if you put yourself there? Would there be noises that were taking place? Yes, no? Do you think there was sound? I mean, is a tornado loud? Yeah, okay. What would you be physically feeling? Okay, not not emotionally, physically, what would you be in the sense? What, what, would you, what would you sense? Yeah, I, I, th- those are the feelings. Physically, uh, in a sense, would you be feeling air? Would you be feeling m- being pushed? Okay, could you be feeling, you know, there's lightnings going on as well. Could you now, let's, what's the emotions going through a person at this moment? Fear, terrified, do you think God got his attention? If all of a sudden a tornado came knocking at your door, would, he, would God get your attention? So God has him at this moment that, that Job is saying, I, I really want to talk to God. And all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, here he is. And so God starts speaking to him. What is interesting in the chapter is what God doesn't say to him. Now you can read it through, if you would, we'll talk about it this morning and this evening. We're going to go through the first section, chapter 38 up to the beginning of chapter 40. So this evening, read through even some, or this afternoon, read through some of it. Go through and see if this isn't the case. When God speaks in this whole section, God does not answer Job with a saying, okay, let me explain why. God never does. Never does. God makes no apology. Oh, I'm really sorry you had to go through this. God does not say, oh, by the way, Job, it's not my fault. Satan made me do it. There's no even explanation or mention of Satan in this text. God, uh, God doesn't, and this is the whole, this is the book of Job. Why does suffering occur? God never gives a treatise. He never gives an explanation why suffering happens. God never goes, oh my. You know how when somebody's telling you all the terrible things that happened to him or all the difficulties, you just go, oh my. God never does that. God never in this thing, he never condemns Job by saying, hey Job, um, you questioned me, you wanted to talk with me, how dare you do it? He never says that. But God also never gives him any pity or immediately says, Job, I'm, 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 Job, it's been so tough, I promise I'm going to change everything. God never does that. God never ex- does any of those things. And he never says, poor Job. Oh, my Job. There's none of that. What is interesting is when God starts speaking, he first of all challenges Job. Here's Job. He's in this, in this pitiful situation. He's in this terrible situation. He's lost his kids. He's lost his health. And God challenges him. Look what he says to him in the first couple of verses. God starts speaking to him in verses 2 and 3. And God says, um, out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer you me. Let's let's make sure you understand. The words are very specifically for Job, not his friends. There is singular pronoun verbs. It is not you guys. It is Job. When God speaks to him, he asks him, "Who is this that darkens?" The Hebrew word has the idea of casting a shadow over. The counsel, the word literally has the thoughts, the plans. Who is this that is throwing some, who's throwing a blanket, who is darkening, who is, who is uh, in essence, uh, questioning or, or coming to a point, throwing it over my plans, my designs with words that are without knowledge. You, you don't have full comprehension. In other words, this is W-A-V, WAB version. Okay. Who are you to question my ways and plans and workings? That's the gist of what God says. Then God says to him, gird up your loins like a man. You all know this. Then Bible days, they wore long robes. It would be basically if it's in a job, if it's in a difficult situation, you would pull up that the hem of that robe and tuck it into your belt so that you could stand, so that you could do the work without it getting into your way. And he's basically going to say, I've got a real big job for you. You've got something difficult coming up and I want you to get ready because here you go, Job. I'm going to give you a tough, tough task. And what God does, is he says, For I will demand, Hebrew word literally is, I will question, I will question of you and you are going to give me an answer. You are going to answer me. And so, WAB version, get ready for a real challenging task or test that I'm going to give you. That's what happens. And this is what happens next. God begins to not give answers, but God begins in a whole next chapter and a half for questions. It's question after question, seventy-seven questions that God asks him. He asks him about the earth, he asks him about the snow, he asks about the hail, he asks about the rain, he asks about ostriches, he asks about unicorns, he asks about the hawks and the eagles, and he asks a lot of questions, and God's goal is not is not to embarrass, is not to is not to put down Job. But God's goal is to say, Job. I want you to be, by your lack of ability to answer, I want you to understand you don't understand. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the understanding. You don't have the wisdom to be able to fully comprehend why I do what I do and why I am what I am. So I'm going to start off just asking questions. And basically, here's the the conclusion. You think you can go toe-to-toe with me? You think you can debate with me? You think that I need to explain why I did or allowed what happened to to happen? Job, if you can first prove your great ability to understand things, then I will explain myself. But Job will never be able to do it, neither can we. The questions that are asked are absolutely profound. Here's where God goes. God has a litany in the first part of the sermon where he's going to talk about and ask things. Go with me and just read through with me what he says in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who, lay, who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof of the earth fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And if I can paraphrase, just basically saying, were you there when I created? Did you help me design this earth? Did you lay out the plans? Were you the one who did the measure? measurements do you know how the foundations how this world earth it operates with the gravity and the pull between the planets and if job were able to answer and if job did speak up job's answer be no 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 i don't know and god goes on he says wait a minute let me let me ask you questions about the seas you claim to be such a wise person. Then, then let me ask you several questions. And I want to remind you that already Job has said multiple times, the oceans are immense. The oceans are, are untamable. They're under the hand of God. And it's amazing what happens in the waves and the seas and those forces. And God, it's interesting, God talks about those very oceans that Job said they terrify men. God alludes to them like a baby. Like he, the, the words that he uses here. Who hath shut up the sea with the doors when it break forth, as if it were issued like a baby out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment, the swaddling clothes, okay? And the thick darkness like a diaper for it. And break it for a decreed place. In other words, I put up like you do. When you deal with kids, you put up those, um, Baby yeah, the pan the what do you call them? Gates. Baby gates, thank you. Whew, I'm so I won't get it through. The baby gates. You hem in, he says, I did that. Yeah, you know, I I I did that. The oceans were my baby. They didn't they didn't cause me any problems. They didn't terrify me. Yeah. You know, I I I I have no problems with the oceans. Uh Job, do you have any problems with the oceans? Can you tell me why these things happen? No. No. So I'm going to explain myself to somebody who is intimidated by the waters. Then God goes on a little bit. Okay, and and my comment here was just basically, we are so, you know, we, we can't control, we can't keep it out of our house at times. You know, and God's in total control of this. Then he asks him about the dawn, about the sunrise. He says in verse 12, and interesting, he, have you commanded the morning since the day's? And you have you caused, day spring is, is the dawn, the sunrise, to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it, as it turned as clay to a seal, and they stand as a garment, and from the wicked their light is withholden in a high arm. He's poetically talking about how the dawn comes, and the thieves, it's revealed what they have done, and how the dawn and the sunrise, it affects earth like like a seal, Upon the clay, it moves it about, and just the power of the sun. And he asks, you know, this, this dawn, this steady, reliable, day after day after day, sunrise. He says, you know, that, that, that shows everything. Uh, Job, did you ever command the sun, in all your life, did you ever command the sun to come up at just one day? Just once in your lifetime? I've been doing it since the beginning of creation. Did you ever just once... Did you ever tell the sun where to rise in the horizon, which we all know that it shifts through the fall and the summer and the spring and the winter, that it goes and and there's that shift on, as we think, the shift of the sun on the horizon. Did you ever tell the sun, oh, you need to be here next week, you need to be there next week, and that? He says, you never did that. No, 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 I never did. And then God goes on, and God talks about the ocean deep. He says in verse 16, he says have you entered into the springs of the sea have you walked in the, in the bottom the search the depths of the entire ocean and and so you know here he is says job did you ever did you ever go down to the bottom did you ever see what's down there do you even know how deep the ocean is oh yeah we we're much smarter than job cuz we know it's just under 7 miles at the deepest place that we know of Job, Job did, um, do you know what lives down there at the bottom of the ocean? We don't know what lives there at the bottom of the ocean. And so he's asking him, and Job's response basically like, no, 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 I, I don't know. Then God challenges him in verse 17 about life after death. He says, have you the gates, have the gates of death been opened unto you? Have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? In other words, Job, do you know what happens the moment you die? Do you understand how this process is going to work? Do you know where you're going to be going and how you're going to get there? No. No, I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall see him one day, but I don't fully understand the process of death. I mean, seriously, God could have been saying, do you know when person truly is dead? Isn't that the question of our modern medicine and ethics? When is the person really dead? Because can machines keep the body functioning? But are they there? And none of us know. Job didn't know. God goes and says, hey, Job, you're so smart. You're so intelligent. And I, you want me to answer, do you have you perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare it if you know it. Okay, you and I got this on Job. Okay, we, we're one up on Job. We can right now say, right, we know how big the earth is. You know the square miles, right? We, we know how many miles the diameter, right? We know the radius, right? Well, somebody does. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But he says, okay, this is, these are all the statistics that we can get because we have more technology. But it doesn't mean we keep it in our minds. And Job would have to answer, no, I, I, I don't know. And then God goes on, he says, um, let's talk about light for a little bit. And he starts in verse 19. Where is the way where light dwells? And he's going to picture light as being an entity that has a house, that it comes from somewhere and goes somewhere. Um, He says, where is the way where light dwells? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof, or where does it live? That you should take uh, take it to the bounds thereof, and that you should know the paths to the house thereof. Knowest thou it because you know, you were, you were born or because of the number of your days. You're an old man, Job. You're older than most. And so now that you're older, you probably understand light. You understand where light came from. You understand. Yeah. You say that I created it and yes, and yes. But if you remember Job, there was light before there were any light holders. So where did light come from? How did it get there? Explain this to me, Job. And Job would be basically going, um, I don't know. God made it, but beyond that, I don't know. And we're so intelligent, smart in our day and age, we can say, we understand all about light. Yeah, we can turn the switch on and say that. <laughs> we got it. Okay. And so he's going on and he says, okay, I want to ask you questions about the weather. What do we know for sure about the weather? It changes. Anything else? Is it predictable? Men think it's predictable. Is this morning another illustration of its unpredictability at times? Okay. So it changes. Some of you like it one way. Some of you like it another. Some of you don't like any weather. Okay. Some of you, anything goes. What do we know about the weather? Well, we know it changes a lot. We know it's uncontrollable. We know there are extremes. We know that variety is necessary for life. Right? If everything were the same, it could be a problem. We know that the weather is comfortable at times, but it can also be very dangerous. So we know these facts about it. So God is going to say, Okay, Job, I'm going to ask you an IQ question about the weather. Okay. Oh, by the way, we know this. We know that at a recent world forum they were asking a panel of experts they were they asked this group of men they said what is if there's a single impacting factor upon world economics what one single factor determines and impacts international economics like nothing else unanimously they responded and said the weather and that's true is it not because if there's droughts, if there's famines, if there's different things, weather-oriented changes a lot of the economics. And so he's asking him, he's saying, here we go, let me ask you some questions about the weather. Job, verse 22, have you entered into the treasures or the storage houses of the snow? Have you seen the treasures of the hail? Do you, do you know where snow is kept? Do you know where it comes from, Job? And by the way, verse 23, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of... um, What does one inch of snow do to us? Okay. (laughs) If, If we had heard this forecast, that it was going to be this way, what would have been done in the stores last night? Okay. Because we panic. We do. We do. Panic's the right word. We, we just, you know, I would have been getting calls yesterday morning, are we having church? Okay. You know, today. Because that's the way we are. One inch, two inches, three inches. Last week, our daughter was saying in Detroit, they had 11 inches. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. <laughs> and we are put way out by a little bit of snow. And God is saying, oh, by the way, I have it in reserve. I can control it so well that I kind of keep it in a storehouse. That's the verbiage. That's the poetry he's using, which means that God is, he's in control. He's all powerful. And he even mentions the hail is in reserve for judgment days. Are there any times that God will use hailstones for judgment Yeah, 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 there's several passages that when God was was having the Jews fight against the Gibeonites, and then we talk about in the book of Revelation, that hail comes down from heaven. And this is one passage that just kind of just, you know, gives the, the stamp of exclamation, God is in control. He's in control of those things that that we don't have any idea how to control. He, he goes on. He says, um, "Do you know?" And he asks a couple times. You look at verse twenty-four. By what way is the light? The light here is probably lightning. By what way the lightning is going, or the path that it's trotting? He mentions again in verse twenty-five at the end, or the way of the lightning and thunder. Same word in the Hebrew, by the way. That uh, he's so he's making this observation. Do you? Do we know where lightning will strike? And we all say, no, no, we don't know. Do you know how the wind works? Which way it's going to blow in certain directions? And we say, yeah, they can forecast. But in all reality, do we control the wind? No, 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 no. Do you know that the paths of the way that God has made for nature, how it works? Do you understand them all? And we're going to say, no, no, no. We're very limited. We don't understand. We don't even understand some, a lot of things about water about precipitation he, he gives a whole explanation of this he says in verse 26 to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is or in the wilderness can you explain job do you control this job where there's going to be rain in a spot where no people live and why that rain goes there it to satisfy the desolate and the waste ground to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth so where there's nobody living in some of these deserted areas in Job's day, there's nobody there. Why would God send rain to a place where no farmers are at? Yeah, why, why, what, so who needs the plants? The animals, which becomes his next second. Which he, we're going to take a tour of the zoo tonight. He's going to talk about the animals. God controls the rain not just for human purposes, but for the animals. And he's going to give a tremendous explanation of how, how he takes care of those animals. And he says, hey, wait a minute. Do you even know, verse, as he goes on, jump down to verse 20, has the rain a father, somebody that created it, who has begotten? How did, how did it rain? How did this come to pass that, that you know, this rain comes upon the earth? And you and I say, well, wait a minute. We in our intelligence, we can kind of figure some of this out. Did anybody ever hear of Dr. Henry Morris? Do you know who he is? Okay, he's a creationist uh, scientist, okay, that's uh, very strong and writes a lot of materials. With the right combination of air, turbulence, and clouds... The complex forces generate an electrical field that produces lightning discharges. These violent electrical currents in a complex energy exchange that we do not fully understand cause the small water droplets to bind together with others to form larger drops that then become too heavy to remain in the clouds and thus fall to a thirsty ground. I read that and go, yeah, that explains. Now should I explain it to you? Uh Uh-uh. I can't understand some of what he said. But that God is so amazing that God can create a dust element, a wind element, electrons, and all that, that combination to cause it to rain. And he says, do you know how that works? And Job goes, no. No, I have no idea. Do you, do you know how water works? Look at verse 29. Do you know how this works? That out of the womb, the, the, the parent of the water, how, how ice comes about, the hoary frost of heaven, where, where it comes from? Who generated this? How, how does it happen that this, this, same, this same element, the same H2O, can be liquid, can be gas, can become a solid? How, how does this all work? How is it possible, verse 30, that the waters are hid, they go down into the deeps as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen? And how is it that it works that water that freezes can move, can create potholes? That one we understand, okay? Who knows all this? Stedman, in his book, he makes a comment about this, if I can find the right page without boring you. But he's talking about God's greatness and God's wonders and his majesty. And he makes this whole comment about this, this whole idea. Then God asked Job about the ice and the frost. From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? It's significant that God confronts Job with a question about ice and frost. When ice freezes, it does something that hardly any other substance does. It expands. Why does frozen water expand in volume when virtually every other substance contracts when it freezes? The answer has to do with the fact that water freezes into a crystalline structure because the hydrogen atoms in ice bond together with a lattice-like formation. The crystal lattice has an open shape that causes ice to expand. It also causes ice to be less dense than liquid water, which is why ice floats. If ice did not expand and float, fish and other living creatures could not live in frozen ponds. When ice forms on top of a pond, that layer of expanded ice helps insulate the water below and keeps it from freezing solid. This property enables the fish to live in frozen ponds. The expansion of ice also helps make the soil more fertile. Rain and dew soak into the soil. When this moisture freezes, it forms ice crystals. These crystals expand, and in the process, they break down the hardened earth into a fine-grained soil that allows the seed to more easily sprout. So when God asks what Job knows about ice, he's asking Job about one of the basic processes of life. Even so... Job is unable to answer such a simple, basic question. Amazing. And then God basically says, can you, you," verse 34, he says, uh, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the abundance of waters may cover thee? Can you call down water from heaven? Uh, Can you prevent lightning from striking? Down in verse 35. Can, Can you say, go here or go there? The answer is no. Do you, do you have enough wisdom? Look at verses 36, 37, 38. Do you have enough wisdom that you can count the clouds? <laughs> yeah. Think about this. This is like counting heads in a church service. There's always movement. There's bobbing up and down. There's people getting up. Do clouds move more than we do? Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's an amazing. It, this, this, whole, this whole discussion of water, this whole discussion of nature, it's profound because, you know, the, the the reason he's bringing this all up is because water is such a basic entity to our very existence. The human body has been called a water machine, designed primarily to run on water and minerals, In just the last 10 years, medical science has begun to focus more on the healing ability of our body and its dependence on water. The human body is made up of over 70% water. Our blood is more than 80% water. Our brain is over 75% water. The function of every cell in our body is controlled by electrical signals sent through our nervous system from the brain. Our nerves in reality are an elaborate system of tiny waterways. We are fearfully and made. Right? This is by a designer. Tonight we're going to show a video that talks about this design and how important it is and how modern scientists are starting to step away more and more from the idea of it just happened. God is speaking to them. In in fact, the way the earth is put, 70% of our planet is covered by water. We understand that. We are just nestled in our solar system at just the right distance from the sun for the liquid to exist. Any further, the water would freeze. Any closer, it would be too hot and we'd be at risk of a runaway greenhouse. effect, similar to what happens in Venus. Our not-too-cold, not-too-hot position in the so-called Goldilocks zone is a pretty good thing because, of course, water is necessary for life. This is written in an article that, How did water get on the earth? written by a scientist that says, we really don't know where water came from, but it's so amazing that it's at the right spot in the solar system, at just the right place, and just the right temperature, all those things together. And you and I say, it's because of God. It's because of God. And then when we talk about our earth and we talk about how this all works together and then we talk about the the impact that this all has upon us, you know, we go a little bit further and say, oh, when it comes to earth... The, mer- the moon circles the earth and completes a full orbit around the earth every 27.3 days, traveling a distance of almost a million and a half miles each month. As the moon orbits the earth, it causes the earth to swell ever so slightly. The earth actually bulges out towards the moon, and this is what affects the water level of the oceans. As the earth rotates on its axis, these bulges move across the face of the earth, creating too high, too low tides every day. Just this one characteristic of planet Earth and its bodies of water is absolutely vital to sustaining life on it. Scientists have now spent nearly $20 billion trying to answer the question of how the moon evolved. The record of scriptures tells us it was accomplished by God. By God himself. They could have saved all that money. And just answer this. This It's an amazing thing. And that takes the discussion into the stars. Look at what he says in verse 30, 31 and 33. He says um, in this question, Can you bind the sweet influence of Pleiades or loose the bounds of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Mazaroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcticus with his sons, the planets around him? Now, earlier... Job had talked about how God had known the stars and he understood them and he understood the bear, the Big Dipper. And that it went in place. Now God asked him, do you understand how these all work together? Are you the one that keeps the moons even around Arcticus? Are you the one that... And Job would have to answer, no, 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 no. And I'm amazed. I'm just absolutely amazed. If I were to stand here this morning and say, hey, think this through with me. If we were just to talk about Arcticus, that one star... This is the size compared to, can you see what I have in my hand? Anybody see what I have? It's a straight pin. The head of the straight pin, you know how small it is? You can't see it. That's earth compared to Arcturus. That's the comparison of these, these creations of God. And not only does God control this, but he's, controls everything on this pinhead, and then he sees all of us pinheads on the pinhead. <laughs> and not only does he see us, but he knows even to the f- smallest minutia about us. He knows the hair on our heads. That's what this discussion is all about. Job, when when you think about how big you are, when you think about how you wanted me to answer your questions, uh I'll answer them if you can tell me how big you are. Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president, he did a lot of strange things. Not just his politics. I'm talking about his extra political stuff. He would box. That's how he ended up. He had a detached retina because he was boxing with one of the government officials that he just wanted to box with. Um, He would play hide and seek in the White House with his kids and then any of the ambassadors or others who would join in. Um, He was known to do skinny dipping in the Potomac even with other, you know, officials. Like the time the French ambassador said, I don't know if I'll do that. What if a lady comes by? So the ambassador wore his hat and gloves just to make sure if a woman came by, he was somewhat modest. Um, Teddy Roosevelt also did this, is he would have guests at the White House and frequently he would take them outside at night and he'd say, everybody lay on the grass. And they lay on the lawn and he would say, just watch the stars, watch the stars. Just watch the sky. And then after they would do that, several reported that his, his frequent response was this. Well, I guess we're small enough now. Let's go to bed. That's exactly what God is doing with Job. He's saying, Job, you see all this? See all this amazing stuff? Now, Job, now that I've put you, given you an image of what you are in comparison... Then I want you now to answer me. And after this entire lecture, oh, by the way, there's still more to it. We'll deal with the tour of the zoo tonight, the second half of this sermon, about the animal kingdom. But at the end, God says, Job, after I've explained, jump down to chapter, chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct God? And the answer is, no way, no way. We can't even give these simple explanations of how you work. And he says, let him answer. Job, this is your chance. Here's Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Can we break down what Job is going to say? Job in this moment is humbled. He comes to where we need to be. To have great humility before God Almighty. If I could phrase his words in just simple phrases, this is what I'd be saying. I am small. I am really small. You have just taught me how small I am, God, through all these visual object lessons. The word for I am vile, in the Hebrew it's kalal. And it's a kal form in the Hebrew. That doesn't mean much to some of you at all. But if it's a hithpal or a pu'al or pi'al, then it has a different rendering. It would have the rendering of I'm cursed. I am sinful. He doesn't do that. He uses clearly the kal. The kal, kalal in the cal means this. I'm a lightweight. I am of no account. I am small compared to others. And so he says, you know, as far as all of this trials, as far as all of these things that have consumed me and concerned me, Job came to a point at this moment that he says, I'm small, it's not about me, is it? This isn't about me and my aches and my pains and my comfort and my possessions. I am small before you. In other words, it's not about my comfort, my preferences, my rights. It's not about my way or what I like or what I prefer. Or my possessions. It's not about my kids. My successes. It's not about my world. It's not about me getting recognition. And people lauding me. And people saying how great I am. Or my being pleased. Or me getting money. It's not about this. What what all of life is about is you. I'm small compared to you. And we are all small compared to him. And so he says. This is a. Th- this is. This is what I need to recognize. My life is to be about exalting God. That's why all this vast creation was play, was created. The heavens and the earth declare His glory. We are part of the creation. We are to declare His glory, not our own. We're supposed to be small. There, one fellow said you know, in his, his application of this, he was talking about an instance that he said a friend of his was listening to a sermon about being small being one that it's not about me, it's not about, about you know, my life and my recognition and my family noticing me. And so this fellow, Tom Anderson, who works in Wall Street, he said, I was listening to a message I made a vow to myself on the drive, home, drive down to the vacation beach cottage. For the next two weeks, I would try to be a loving husband, totally loving, no ifs, ands, or buts. The idea had come to me when I listened to a sermon on my tape player and the pastor was quoting a passage about husbands being thoughtful, that it's not about about you it's about you helping others to become what God wants them to become. And so he went on to say, love is an act of the will. A person can choose to love or choose not to love biblically. So to myself, I had to admit that I had been a selfish husband, that our love had been dulled by my own insensitivities in pretty much in, in petty ways, really, chi- um, really chiding Evelyn for her tardiness, insisting that the TV channel be the one I want to watch, throwing out the papers and newspapers and articles before Evelyn, Evelyn had a chance to read them. Well, for two weeks, all that would change. And it did. Right from the moment, I kissed Evelyn at the door and said, Oh, that new yellow sweater looks great on you. Her response, Tom, you noticed. Surprised but pleased and maybe a little shocked. After the drive, I wanted to sit and read. Evelyn suggested we walk on the beach. I started to refuse, but then I thought, it's not about me. Evelyn's been alone here with the kids all week, and now she wants to be alone with me. So we went for a walk on the beach while the kids flew their kites. So it went. Two weeks of not calling into the office at the investment firm where I was the director. A visit to a shell museum, though I usually hate museums. Holding my tongue while Evelyn's getting ready made us late for another dinner date. Relaxed and happy, that's how the whole vacation passed. I made a new vow to keep on remembering to choose love because it's not about me. There was one thing that went wrong with my experiment, however. On the last night at our cottage, preparing for bed, Evelyn stared at me with the saddest expression. What's the matter? I asked her. Tom, do you know something I don't know? What do you mean? Well, that checkup I had several weeks ago. Our doctor, did he tell you something about me? Tom, you've been so good to me. Am I dying? It took a moment for it all to sink in. Then I burst out laughing. No, honey. I said, wrapping her in my arms. You're not dying. I'm just starting to live the right way. (laughs) But hey, listen. Listen. Most of us aren't small. Most of us, we struggle with becoming small. Because it's all about us. He says, not only am I small, he says, I am simple. I am simple. His response is, what am I going to answer you? I'm going to lay my hand upon my mouth lest I say something else dumb. I'm not going to say anything. Here he's responding, I don't have all the answers. And by the way, isn't it a relief to know you don't need to have all the answers? He's, he's, he's basically saying, I'm not as intelligent as, and as wise as I think I am. Now that's a statement for a lot of us to make. He's saying, I need to learn from you more and more. You have just shown me how great and marvelous you are. I need to sit back and just be quiet and to learn from you, God. Have you come to the point where you are willing to admit you don't know enough spiritually that you need to be in the Word of God more? Are you willing to admit that you don't know so much Bible that you don't need to be in Bible studies and sermons and and services? Are you willing to finally admit I need God's word so much than direction and guidance and I'm not that smart. I need direction every single day from God that I'll read his word. We're we're not ready to say we're simple. We struggle with saying we're small. And it doesn't happen if we keep on talking. If we keep on arguing. That's where Job makes the third statement. I will be silent. I will be silent. I have spoken once. Yeah, I spoke twice. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to argue with you anymore. He's convinced that he has said too much. He has justified himself too much. He has argued with God too much. He has given excuses too much. And so what he does now, he says, I'm going to sit here and wait patiently and you've got more to teach me. So I'm going to sit here and learn more. And I will be quiet. And I won't speak up and give my peace. Too many of us haven't come to a point where we're willing to say, I'm going to be silent before God and just hear him. Too many of us are are saying, God, you explain yourself in the middle of the trial. I'm on this journey and it's difficult and I don't understand. Give me an answer. And we haven't learned to wait, to sit, to quietly and patiently wait on the Lord. Too often we're like that little four-year-old who's riding in the back seat of his parents who are uh, on this trip. And, and what, a, what a four-year-olds ask from the back seat? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And mom, in exasperation, after the hundredth time, turned and said to Timmy, Timmy, I want you to be quiet. I don't want you to ask any more questions. Just be quiet now. We're not going to be there. It's going to take a while. And when we get there, we get there. Now Stop asking. Timmy sat for a while. You know four year olds. Sat in a seat for several minutes. Can I ask a question? Yes, Timmy, what's your question? Will I still be four years old when we get there? (laughs) (laughs) That's us. That's us. We want to know the answers. I am his servant. I am his servant. Job has come to a point where he says, I, I, I have a clear understanding of this thing. I don't know everything. I need to be taught. I need to be silent. I, I just need to understand that I can't, I can't argue, I can't debate, I can't demand. I am a servant. I am here to serve, not to be served. Have you come to that point? Have you come to the place where you say, God, I'm going to let you be in charge. I'm going to serve you. If it means serving my family a certain way, I'll do it. If it means following your word, I'll do it. I will serve you and others the way you want. Have you come to that point? Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll find out how you respond to visiting the widows. Maybe it'll maybe you will find out how you share the word of God with others. Maybe your servanthood will have come glowing out the way you work and pray and fast for the needs of other people. I'm a servant. There was this preacher's conference held a couple of years ago in the Midwest, and when they came in, there was the theme of the conference was on a huge banner all 1,500 people came in and they all commented afterwards that it was funny, but it was really, really impacting. The banner and the theme of the conference to all these guys and their wives who came to this conference who on every worship day are so busy with making sure everything goes right, making sure the bulletin is done, the slides are done, and the sound system works, and everybody is pleased with the temperature in the auditorium. There was this huge banner across the front. Relax, you're not in charge. Isn't that a statement of fact? For preachers and for others, are you able to relax and rest in the Lord when it comes to Him providing for you? Him making the changes in your kid's life? Him drawing that person that you're sharing the gospel with to salvation? Are you resting in him when it comes to helping you to have the wisdom to resolve a conflict? You do what you're supposed to do and it leaves it up to God the rest of it. This is what Job is learning. Job is learning through this whole instance to practice humility before God and others. Theme this week, this week's one thought, practice humility. Practice humility that you say, I will be small. I will be small. Practice humility that says, I am simple. I need teaching and understanding and direction. I need your word more and more. Practice humility that you will learn to be silent at times and not promote yourself, not promote your ideas, not argue in your own defense. Work at becoming a servant this week. This is true humility. This is where God is bringing Job who was loyal to the Lord, who said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. He had to learn humility. Don't we need to learn the same? And God speaks from the throne of heaven. As you drive out and you look at the snow and you look at the weather and you say, he's in charge. He's in charge. When the sun goes down, you remind yourself, he's in charge, I need to be humble. When the sunrise comes this week, look out, notice it's beauty or the sunset, and say, he's in charge. When you open that tap this, morning, this afternoon and the water comes out, it's a marvelous thing what God has done, the way he's done water. He's in charge. I need to be humble. I need to be humble. I need to be humble.